coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. We have an incredible challenge, not only with our kids, but with our adults with, with obesity and poor nutrition uh, across the country. And that doesn't happen when you turn 30. It happens when you're 8 or 10. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me today, one of our executive producers, Abby Ware. Abby, welcome. Thank you, General Gross. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's good to have you here. Uh, ben is traveling, so I'm glad you could be with us. I understand, though, you've met our guest today, General Renuart. Yes, I met General Renuart actually on my first work trip. We were doing a press event in Colorado Springs. It was around active transportation and the importance of physical activity, and he really impressed me. I mean, Obviously, he's a four-star general, was a commander in CENTCOM, and he really showed me what an impressive group of leaders that Mission Readiness has with retired admirals and generals. Really blew me away at the event, but also was just clearly a really fantastic leader. So set a really good example for all Mission Readiness members and haven't really been let down since. Well, and that's interesting because my memory of General Renuard is when in the early days after 9-11, he was the director of operations at CENTCOM. And so every day I would see him on this briefing and he essentially was running the war and then later running both Afghanistan and uh, the, the conflict in Iraq. And so, you know, he just seemed like such a steady hand, calm leadership as he, uh, you know, advised the commander and planned the operations. I really had a great impression of him as you did. And, and I just can't wait to talk to him on today's podcast. So without further ado, let's get to that conversation. Well, my guest today on today's podcast is General Victor Gene Renuart Jr., a retired U.S. Air Force four-star general. His last military assignment was as the commander of U.S. Northern Command and NORAD from 2007 to 2010. General Renuart retired from the Air Force in 2010 after over 39 years of service to our nation. In retirement, he serves as a consultant for BAE Systems and more recently founded the Renuart Group, LLC. He also serves on multiple boards, both for-profit and nonprofit, in the defense, energy, commercial development, construction, and healthcare sectors. Important to us, he joined Mission Readiness in 2011 and is a very, very active member out in Colorado. General, thank you so much for joining us on the Mission Readiness podcast today. Well, thanks, Rich. It's great to be with you. Mission Readiness is was something that I became... Uh, aware of be even before I retired and jumped at the chance to become a part of in a small fashion uh, since retirement. So many great activities that it, it is out advocating for and, and especially taking care of ensuring that our young kids get the education and the nutrition and the fitness that, that really makes sense to, to make them great citizens. Absolutely true. Well, could you start, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe what I didn't cover, your military background, and, and tell us what you're working on these days. Sure. Well, 
As you were kind to mention, uh, spent a lot of time in the Air Force, uh, uh, about 39 years or so. Came in to the military right after school. Uh, this was back in the in the end of the Vietnam War days, and uh, wanted to fly airplanes. And so I was lucky enough to to go on to flight school and later become a, a fighter pilot. A-10s and F-16s were make up the bulk of my flying. I've got a little C-130 time and a little helicopter time as well, but really primarily a close air support uh, attack kind of guy and was lucky enough to command our Air Force's Flying Tiger organizations actually a couple of different times and led a squadron in combat during Desert Storm, then was involved obviously later on with, with Operation Enduring Freedom and, and Iraqi Freedom. So I spent a fair amount of time uh, in my life in the Middle East, uh, got to know that, that region pretty well. Over, over the years, I was again fortunate to command at the, both as I mentioned, the squadron level, but also at the wing level, command of the 52nd Fighter Wing at Spangdalem, and then followed that up with the, at the 347th Wing at Moody, and then uh, off to Saudi Arabia in 2000. Came back from Saudi Arabia in 2001 before 9-11 happened and uh, boy times changed significantly then. Spent time at CENTCOM as the director of operations there uh, working for General Franks. And then went to the Pacific, spent some time in the Pacific as the vice commander of Pacific Air Forces. Uh, Washington figured out that I had avoided them for, for a very long time and, and so I had to pay my dues and go back to the Pentagon in, in 2005 as the director of, director of Strategic Plans and Policy, the J-5 and the Joint Staff, and then the Secretary's military assistant for, for about a year. So uh, some really interesting experiences, uh, as you mentioned, finalized by my commanding position there at NORAD Northcom Mountain, Colorado Springs. All in all, professionally and personally, an incredible career that I was felt very fortunate to both enjoy as a as a professional, but also enjoy as a family. We were lucky to to move all over the world, so a great great experience. You know, as for now, uh, as as you mentioned, I, I'm serving on a number of uh, boards, for profit and not for profit. I've I've been involved with not only mission readiness, but the U.S. GLC, the U.S. Global Leadership uh, Conference a couple of large nonprofits in Colorado and uh, and and more recently I've kind of winnowed that down a little bit uh, to a couple of uh, for-profit corporations and a couple of nonprofit I chair the uh, Indiana Innovation Institute in in uh, headquartered in Bloomington Indiana which is a, a very unique not prof not for profit designed to pull universities government industry together and looking at innovative technologies and things like hypersonics and artificial intelligence and uh, advanced microchip manufacturing and the like. So lots and lots of things to do, but, uh, uh, but I also uh, enjoy having some time on my own. I get out of my horse a bit. I've, I spend some time skiing. I fish a bit and play some golf. So life is good. That does sound good. Now, that's an extraordinary career, both military and and since you've retired from the service, I, I did want to ask you about your time as the director of operations at U.S. Central Command, because you were there when 9-11 occurred, which was an extraordinarily challenging time for everyone. But you were directing the operations for the Middle East as we began operations in the initial phases of the war in Afghanistan, but also later in 2003, the war in Iraq must have been an extraordinarily challenging time for you, both professionally and personally. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. I, uh, I actually met General Tom Franks prior to coming to CENTCOM. I was the uh, commander of Operation Southern Watch, uh, headquartered in Saudi Arabia, which was the no-fly zone in southern Iraq. And uh, he came and visited and spent some time. This was one of our, the first times we had employed the, the uh, unmanned systems, the Predator, in the, uh, in the region. So we got a chance to sort of demonstrate how you can integrate intelligence and air power into, you know, real effects on the battlefield. He uh, went back to CENTCOM and, and about, uh, oh, I don't know, three months later, my boss called me and said, hey, you remember that assignment we told you you had? Not so fast. And uh, as you'll appreciate, as you get more senior in the military, the first or the second or maybe even the third assignment you get notified about probably doesn't happen because so many things are involved in that process. And, and by and large, General Frank said, hey, uh, it, uh, I'd like to have Renuart move from, from Saudi Arabia to CENTCOM and, and be the director of ops there. Well, this is, this is uh, now March, uh, February, March of, of 2001. Uh, certainly, we'd been doing the no-fly zone. The Bush administration had just come into office. And, and, but you didn't see something out on the horizon that was going to cause that region to be as obviously as visible as it eventually was. And, and, and I had, while I grew up in Florida, I'd never been assigned to, to the MacDill area. So my wife and I thought this would be great. We'll go to Tampa. We can do some sailing in our boat. We can get our kayaks out and we can enjoy uh, the area while doing a, an important job that I, that I knew a, a bit about in the Middle East. Obviously, 9-11, you know, totally changed the, the course of, of history and um, it was interesting because General Franks had 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 departed on a trip to uh, he was headed to uh, to Jordan and then down into Saudi Arabia, and so he had just landed in Cyprus when uh, when the attacks on the World Trade Center occurred. We had a we were doing a carrier swap out in the middle of that, one headed down to South Africa and one headed into the Gulf. And we got a hold of him on the airplane as he was literally as he was landing. And, and his guidance was the president's going to want a course of action here quickly, like within the next two to three hours, start working and call me when you've got a plan. So, um, and, and General Mike DeLong was the, was the deputy there at CENTCOM. And so we sat down with the senior staff and began to formulate what could we offer the, the leadership in the White House on the very short term, but then more importantly, what kinds of things might we want uh, to be considered in a, in, a, in a longer term. And so literally we turned a carrier battle group around. They both drove back up into the Gulf. Uh, we, we stopped the deployment of uh, U.S. Air Force aircraft that were in a normal rotation heading back. We, uh, we, we added some, some ballistic missile launch capability that, that came along with the carrier battle group. So, so we created for General Franks to give to the president a a quick response if we knew enough to to really have that kind of a uh, an option and then began really to think about what what do we do that's really meaningful that that the u.s can demonstrate a, a strong solid response to those activities well that's a long lead-in to say that uh, we as 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 many of us in the military nobody slept for the next 11 or 12 days, we lived out of our offices. Uh, you know, you can, you can hot bunk a couple hours and be back in it pretty quickly. 
And, and the team that, that I was fortunate enough to have was some really, really great um, colonels and, and majors and captains and senior NCOs who, who understood warfighting and who understood planning. And so we set about very quickly trying to give the president some near-term options, but, but very quickly also it became apparent that President Bush was, was more interested in a meaningful response that could change the course of the, of the uh, environment there and hopefully then put a, put a stop to some of the terrorist activities that were going on. So we, we, we began uh, a series of video teleconferences because, as, as you recall, forces are spread everywhere. Um, we had to create access into the region. Uh, we really didn't have truly any close friends anywhere in that region, save you know, Kuwait and Bahrain and the UAE in, in the immediate Gulf region, but, but that really didn't give us any access. So literally we very quickly got on airplanes and started talking to the Pakistanis, to, to the Kazakhs, um, to Kyrgyzstan, to create literally places where we could begin to base forces because we had no basing rights anywhere in the region and began planning for what eventually turned out to be the largest airlift operation ever in history. And so uh, it, to say we were busy and, and challenged was uh, a bit of a, an understatement. But as I said, I had a great team. Uh, and uh, the, the nice thing about General Franks is he was pretty clear in his guidance and, and he empowered the, the leaders to, to do the planning we needed to. We would bring those, we'd iterate back and forth with him as he was coming back from the, from the region and, uh, and really began to put together the skeleton of what became Operation Enduring Freedom. And then obviously further down the road, Operation Iraqi Freedom came, came to light as well. So I, I'd say personally, it was, my wife will tell you, it probably, she thinks it probably took 10 or 15 years off my life professionally it was one of the most amazing experiences that that anyone who wears the uniform could hope to have because you're aside from the fact that you're making some history you're really orchestrating an operation that was going to bring together forces eventually of over 70 nations and all of our services and and put them in a in a time and place that that could be meaningful uh, in terms of uh, what the operation would do. So I, I, we could write a book on that. I could, I could talk a long time, so I don't want to keep going, but, but really an incredible uh, experience. And, and the, the other thing about General Franks' style is that, that he, uh, I went with him to every briefing that went to the secretary and the president and the National Security Council and, and brief most of them. He would prefer to have the J3 brief and then he would you know, add or answer questions or add intent as, as questions may have come up. So it, it kind of threw me into a place that I probably never experienced, expected to experience in my life, but uh, was an incredible learning uh, opportunity for me. You watch national policy being made at the very highest levels in the world, frankly. So I, again, I could talk a long time, but that's, that's a short synopsis of a, of a very long number of days. No, it's absolutely incredible. And I, I agree with you. There's a book that needs to be written there if, uh, if it hadn't already. Well, you've been a mission readiness member for us now for 10 years and have participated in a wide range of activities, both at the federal level and in Colorado. What, what first motivated you to get involved in this work? Well, you know, I think, uh, and I, I might come back to this a little later, but one of the things that, that 
growing up in, in my military career that I was very lucky to have uh, incredible bosses, basically, that, that, that taught me a lot about being a leader. But one of the things that always stuck to, with me was that if you're not growing your replacement and your replacement's replacement while you're leading, you're, you're failing. And so creating pathways for young leaders to grow up into to, uh, their future has always been something that I've been very interested in. And when you extend that out to the kids that we have to uh, rely on to be our next two or three generations of military leaders, you know, at that time, they were still in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and, and they're now grown up to be those leaders that we want them to be. And, and so to me, it made sense to try to help impact that process. The other is that too many kids get lost in the shuffle. Sadly, we've got uh, broken families. You got, you know, look at the statistics of single parent households um, with with multiple kids, and and sadly, those kids can very easily get dropped. And uh, mission readiness appealed to me because it really attempts to ensure that it gets to the kids who might otherwise get dropped by the wayside, and uh, and it focuses on things like nutrition. We have an incredible challenge not only with our kids, but with our adults with, with obesity and poor nutrition uh, across the country. And that doesn't happen when you turn 30. It happens when you're eight or 10. And, and so creating good eating habits and, and healthy fitness programs uh, were, were really important. So, you know, it was a natural fit for me. I was lucky enough to grow up as an athlete uh, throughout my younger days and continued that into my, my military career. And, it, it was always important to me to, to try to ensure that uh, that not only I stayed fit and healthy, but that that we encourage that in our in our young you know officers and enlisted that are coming up. Have you had any particularly memorable experiences while volunteering with Mission Readiness? Well, you know, I think uh, spending time. Uh, uh, well, I've had a couple that uh, maybe before Michael came on board in Colorado, but uh, we uh, we had some legislation that that. Governor Hickenlooper was still in in the office that that really created uh, bicycle pathways and the and the like and it was fun to be a part of that for a couple reasons one it the light kind of came on with with the governor that hey it's important to the military to have healthy fit smart kids uh, hadn't thought about that a lot and then what do you do to allow kids to be able to ride their bikes to school and 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 have fitness opportunities that aren't necessarily structured gym classes, but rather you encourage them to be out. You probably like me, you know, we, we were outside till somebody hollered for dinner. And, uh, and if there was still light after you went right back outside and we're, we're going a mile a minute. So uh, we've lost a bit of that. So creating some, uh, some opportunities within the state of Colorado, this, this particularly began in the Denver area, so that kids could walk and ride and be safe getting to and from school, but but have a hit a, a healthy fitness opportunity was good. And then the other that was that was particularly enjoyable is is um, being able to get on the hill and talk to our our senior elected officials. Again, they you know, why are you in the military coming to talk to me about school lunch programs and the like? But when you begin to explain that to them, the light really does sort of come on and and they realize that 
oh, by the way, you know, Intel and Google and Hertz rent-a-cars and Delta Airlines and, you know, you pick the industry also needs to have kids who, you know, understand that you need to stay healthy and understand that, that you need to work hard and you have to be educated so that you can take on jobs for them in their sectors. And so getting industry to begin to think about those, those elementary school kids in that way is, is what has been a lot of fun to watch happen. And, and we see that continuing to develop. Well, you've been particularly involved in our early childhood education advocacy efforts in Colorado, sir. How, could you talk a little bit about why setting kids up for academic success is, is so important as the military becomes more technologically advanced? Well, um, like many, uh, I'm a parent of two sons, and my wife is a mom of two sons, and uh, we realize that if you don't if you don't demand quality education for your own children, the system isn't going to do that for kids who have less of a voice. And so we've we've always felt it important to be actively engaged with our school wherever we were, whether it was a DoD school overseas or the local schools in the communities we lived in. Our kids have gone to both uh, DoD and uh, public schools. Then you 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 can't fuss at the system if it's not doing what you hope it would do. When I got to, uh, to, the, to my role at NORAD Northcom in Colorado Springs, unfortunately, the district that Peterson Air Force Base sat in, it, it is the oldest school district in, in the state of Colorado. And it's also, sadly, one of the least funded school districts in the state of Colorado. And what we saw with many of the military families is they were they were driving across town to take their kids to one of those so-called better schools. And so both my wife and I sat down with a superintendent in D11 and then eventually in District 2 as well to say, look, we, we've got to ask more. If you want our military kids to come to your school, which, by the way, brings funding, then we've got to find a way to... It, to elevate the performance of the teachers and the students in the classroom and create an environment where they can flourish. At the same time, we became involved in a, uh, a, D- a DOD supported program that targeted fifth graders and, and essentially a STEM program that allowed for them to come and spend five days in a, in a space related environment. And they built remote vehicles, they learned how to to uh, program computers to, to create a, an autonomous vehicle that could drive the face of the moon and those kinds of things. And we were visiting one of these programs in, in Michigan some years ago. And it happened that there was a, a fifth grade group from a Detroit, downtown Detroit city school that was here visiting this, this institute. And we asked them, you know, how many of you kids thought you wanted to be a scientist or a mathematician or an astronaut or whatever and before you came here? Maybe one hand out of 50. How many of you now, having been here, this was the next to last day, think you want to do that? And virtually every hand went up. And what struck us was if you can appeal to the, to the imagination of a young person, and these are fifth graders, so they're, they're, not, they're not high schoolers by any stretch. But if you don't appeal to their imagination as a fifth grader, you've lost them by the time they get to junior high and high school. So, you know, felt strongly that we needed to do whatever we could within Colorado Springs and the communities we lived in, 
you know, we work with, with senior leaders and, and senior NCOs, families to encourage them to, to, to go to district 11, to, but to demand the quality that we want. And, you know, they haven't completely turned around over the years, but they've sure made great strides. And, uh, and similarly in, in the other district, uh, district two made great strides. And those are underserved co uh, communities within Colorado Springs. So, you know, that, that became a pretty important aspect of what I felt my role was to support the community in Colorado Springs. And we've continued to try to do that since. No, that's great. Education is so important for young people. Obviously, child nutrition is another big issue for us that's important. And in March, the Senate Agriculture Committee held a hearing on child nutrition reauthorization, which is the first time this issue has really been discussed seriously in the Senate for several years You've been a longtime member and have watched this issue, obviously, back and forth, both in, in our national legislature, the Congress, but also you've watched it in Colorado. Do you think as a nation we have made progress in addressing youth nutrition and hunger issues? And what progress do you still think needs to be made? Well, I, I, you know, I, I have to say I think we have made some progress. I think it's, it's come because... Of, of the advocacy of, of organizations like Mission Readiness, but also a, a, an, an understanding that we've got such a kind of nutrition gap uh, across society. And, and it, it, unfortunately, it's worse in the school districts that have the least funding and you get this sort of almost a death spiral uh, that if you don't intervene and create something that can make a difference, then it's almost too hard to get out of. And, and we've seen school districts across the country that, that are challenged in that regard. Now, I, I will also say that it's, it, you can't create a bigger government organization to solve this problem. This is a problem that has to be solved within a community. It has to be solved by the engagement of, of the private sector. Um, and you see some wonderful organizations out there now that are paying attention to this. The Gates Foundation and many others, El Pomar Foundation in Colorado Springs, have all become more active and passionate about creating better nutrition for kids. And, and of course, as you do that, that benefits their parents as well. So I think, I think we've made some, some progress. I think we, we've got to really find a way to capture industry more. I say industry, it's really the private sector writ large. Uh, because I think they have, I, I think they have a responsibility to to ensure that whatever can be done is done to to provide, you know, quality education, quality nutrition, quality fitness for the kids that are that are coming up through our our schools. And like I said, with the space related program, if you don't start at the you know elementary school, you're not going to recover them by the time they're a junior high or high schooler. So this is something that is, is really important. And it's hard sometimes to convince um, a business that it's actually helping their workforce if they invest in better nutrition for a third, fourth, fifth grader. You know, they're, they're worried about how do I recruit somebody tomorrow to fill a job I have? And, and you have to really work hard with them to, to demonstrate why it's important to do both. You have to recruit for that job tomorrow, but you've got to invest in a pipeline it's going to keep your workforce strong and vibrant and healthy for decades, or your business will fall by the wayside. 
No, absolutely true. I want to turn to a commencement address you gave at Troy University in 2014. I saw an article about it. You had some really interesting recommendations for the students there about how to be good leaders. And obviously, you had a long career of leadership. Could you share your leadership philosophy and uh, with us and, and tell us how it's evolved over the years? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think I, I'd say if, if anybody, if any person who's been in a leadership role says, I have the solution to leadership, they're probably fibbing to you. Because most of us sort of assimilate leadership traits and, and, and characteristics over time. But one of the things a leader told me a long time ago is he said, you know, were you a good note taker in school? And I said, yeah, no, sir, I was horrible. He said, well, start. And I went, oh, okay, what do you mean? And he said, look, go get a, go get a hardbound binder, you know, a journal, and just start out by writing down one positive leadership trait that you see tomorrow. Write it down in there. And, and, um, and then the next day, write down another one. And the next day, write down another one. And by the way, as you're doing this, if you see a leadership trait that you don't think is good, write it down too. And over time, you begin to uh, uh, accumulate a lot of little nuggets that really shape who you are as a leader. And, and, and like many parents who find themselves with their kid going, oh my God, I just became my parent. I, will, I swore I'd never do this to my child. You find that same sort of thing in your leadership uh, traits as well, where you, you go, oh man, I wrote down that I didn't want to ever do that. And I kind of just did. Uh, one of the easiest is, you know, uh, criticizing in public. So, so I found that to be extremely helpful. And, and that kind of evolved over the years to, you know, I'm, I'm a much better journal writer and note taker for sure. But, but I've got 25 or 28 years of, of, of anecdotes there that, that are, I, I think, shaped the kind of approach that I take. The other thing that that individual said to me is about every year, go back and reread them. And, and you'll be surprised at what you remind yourself of, what you've forgotten, and, and those, knit, those, those pieces every once in a while you go, oh, wasn't supposed to do that. So that's kind of helped shape me. And what I try to uh, remind young people as they're, as they're getting ready to head out into, into their next role, whether it's graduating from college or, or taking on a new job in, 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 in a business or starting out on their own as an entrepreneur, is that you have to be grounded yourself as a leader, as a person, before you can expect people to, to respect you and follow you as a leader. And so you've got to have those, those elements of personal integrity. You've got to be able to trust people. You've got to be, you got to hold people accountable, but you also have to be accountable, which means you have to admit that you made a mistake. And, and um, I found that if you admit the mistake, if I say publicly, I don't mean necessarily on social media, but admit the mistake to the team you've made it around, that that cements a, a level of leadership respect that is you, you, you almost can't put a price tag on it. I, I think it's important for leaders to be transparent, to be fair, to respect the people, to understand what rule of law is. Sometimes we get we stray away from what is truly right and wrong, and we try to create a gray area where we can operate in because we don't have to be accountable for that. And I think that that's you do yourself a disservice if you if you don't really stay in that in that zone where you know what's right. I mean, 
if you're fortunate enough, like many of us, to have parents who, you know, made sure you knew what was right and wrong, uh, you, your hair kind of goes up in the back of your neck when you're when you're on that borderline because you know, my mom will always catch me when I do this, and she always did. If I did something stupid as a young kid before I got home, she knew about it, and I never figured out how she had that intel network, but they do. So important for for people to have those personal values and then be a leader of character, um, live those values that you've established and and understanding how you take those values and place them into the role that you've been assigned. You know, are you a facilitator or a team builder or a listener or a doer or a coach? All those things are part of being a leader and a good leader figures out how to go from one to the other without violating those personal ethical values that, that you have. The other is, you know, if you're a leader, you're not at the, in the back of the group. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk sometimes in life about lead from behind. Eh, I, I think you have to lead from in front because your people need to understand that you will not do anything, that you will not ask them to do anything that you're not willing and able to do. Able is important. You have to be credible in that role. So if, you know, in my role as a, as a fighter pilot, I had to be a flight instructor and an examiner and a, a leader and, and fly the first sortie out the door because I felt that was something that was important for me to do so that that lieutenant who only had a couple hundred hours in the airplane didn't question themselves and the training they'd had and the like. So uh, leading from in front is important. Understanding that, uh, that that also means to incorporate your team. You'll get some ideas from your team that you didn't expect. Sometimes they come from the least likely source. So you have to be willing to listen and take those on. Try not to fear change, embrace change. Uh, change is, is exciting. It's scary, but you know you, you have to be able to confront the uncomfortable out there. But a lot of folks go fly their first combat sortie. They don't have any idea what it's going to be like, but they do because that training kicks in and uh, and they're they're willing to uh, place their trust in their leadership. So those are some of the things that that uh, I try to encourage folks. Um, lots of little anecdotes over time. Don't tie your ego to your position. Don't ignore or walk past a problem. Uh, trust me, everybody is watching. You can't hide if you're in a leadership role. You're not going to hide. You're not going to go disappear. So um, probably not the time to try to go hide in, in a corner and think nobody will notice that you're not that you're not doing the right thing. So those are those are all elements that I've tried to take advantage of over time and 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 then pass on to to young people as they're moving along in their life. Oh, that's great. And it sounds like you might have your second book there once you finish with the uh, post 9-11. That's uh, <laughs> time to sit down and write these darn books. <laughs> Seriously. Well, you know, it's always fun for me to learn about some of the really cool and interesting things that our, our members do once they've retired from the military, in some cases that they did while they were in the military. You mentioned horseback riding, and I, I'm pretty sure you're the first podcast guest we've had who actually has been a board director for a rodeo, which I think is super cool. Could you tell us more about that organization and how you got involved? Sure. Uh, and, you know, what's fun is none of these are short answers. So saddle up here. 
you know, when Colorado Springs is an amazing community that provides just incredible support to all of the services. Uh, you know, we have Fort Carson and Peterson and and two two major combatant command headquarters. And but that community has embraced the military presence there and values it. As part of that, um, each year the the uh, Pike Speaker Bus Rodeo Foundation sponsors. Uh, an annual rodeo. And as part of that, they also do a, a five-day trail ride where the members of the organization go out for, you know, play cowboy for five days. And as part of the community support, they bestow on the commanders of the installations an honorary membership in the Pikes Peak or Bus Rodeo and the Pikes Peak Range Riders. And, and so I... Uh, was excited with that. I, I hadn't done a lot of horseback riding in my life, but I said, so what does that mean? And they said, well, you know, you can, you can come to our, our guest night out on the, on the trail. And, you know, if, if, if you want to ride in the parade as the grand marshal, you can do that. And I said, well, can I come on the ride? And they said, well, you know, I, you, you could, but, you know, historically the new guests come and they, you ride three years as a guest and you, you know, you're sort of like a pledge in a fraternity. And I said, no, that's fine, but I'm really interested. I, I, I think I, I find it fascinating and I'd love to, to do that. So I, I trapped them and, and they said, okay, well, you could come and ride, see how you like it. Well, I, I'm going back in, in June for my, it'll be my 13th Pikes Peak range ride. But along the way, I became interested in what the Rodeo Foundation did because since it was established uh, by, it was established by Spencer Penrose in Colorado Springs. And, and the idea over time was that the proceeds after World War II, they, they decided that the proceeds of the rodeo would go to benefit a variety of military support activities. Things like the first sergeant's fund or uh, Thanksgiving dinner for military families or more recently, an organization called TAPS, which is a tragedy assistance program for survivors. And the fact that you had a community that was willing to put on an organ, an activity like this to support the military um, was particularly appealing to me. And when I retired from Norad Northcom, the rodeo board asked if I would just like to be a board member. And uh and I, you know, we were going to stay in the Springs. And so I thought that would be, it's, it's a well-known activity in the community. So I said, I'd, I'd, I'd enjoy doing that. Well, I served on the board as a director for, oh, seven or eight years, seven years. And they, and it became clear that I was whittling down the, the, the number of people who were going to be the next year's president. And they came and said, Hey, yeah, everybody else has done it it's your turn. Would you be the president of the rodeo next year? And I said, well, yeah, I'd be happy to. So that, that's how I got started in that. It's a, it's a fascinating organization and they do everything from um, young high school girls drill teams on horseback to a, a bunch of guys that do uh, uh, precision riding drill teams. They do, uh, they sponsor a program called the girl of the West. Who's, who is the spokesperson for the rodeo young, young, usually a, college age young woman uh, with scholarships that help support them. They, they do dress up, kitty dress up rodeos. They do a handicap rodeo for little kids. Uh, it's just a whole variety of, of activities that, that all are focused on sort of preserving the Western heritage, but also 
uh, to, to generate funds that can be then used at the end of the year, usually in October or so, the foundation presents a contribution to the, each of the military installations to a variety of their programs there. So that's how I got started with it. I wasn't smart enough to say no when they asked me to volunteer. And uh, it became a really important part of, uh, of our family and, and, and still continues. It'll be coming up this July, so be ready. Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Well, we have two questions we ask at the end of our podcast for all our guests. The first one, what's one habit or behavior you've developed during the pandemic, either personal or professional, that you'd like to continue doing once the pandemic is over? Probably doesn't count wearing gym shorts under my coat and tie. Uh, so that, I, that that's everybody's doing that. I, you know, I think, I, I guess I'd say I, I spent more time trying to to be more fit if you will um the beauty of the pandemic if there is one is that we hike a lot more we ride our bikes a lot more i'm on my horse a lot more my dog thinks that's awesome because he gets to go on most of that um so you know those things have have become something that we really have valued uh, both my wife and i and fortunately those outdoor activities are have not been locked down if you will so you can be pretty socially distanced on a golf course. You can be socially distanced on a horseback. You can be socially distanced on a bike. So we, we've, that's probably the one thing that we would try to continue. Um, I said, along with that, we've realized that technology can be your friend. So we're probably more conversant with our technology now than we ever were before the pandemic hit. And then last question, what books have you been reading lately or books that you would recommend to our listeners? I've actually gone back to reread some just because, um, you know, they're, they're sitting here looking at me and, and, and there's some time. Um, you know, I think I, I enjoy uh, reading, like, like the discussion about leadership, I enjoy reading examples of difficult leadership circumstances. And so one of one of my favorites is uh, team of rivals which is about abraham lincoln you know i'm looking at my list i just picked up twilight at round top little round top which is obviously about the battle of gettysburg i'm a huge uh jeff shara fan with with his series and uh and then uh, i've 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 enjoyed reading i'll say their their historic accounts of of the life that has occurred over the last 20 years since 9-11. Um, and so uh, obviously President Bush has written books, Secretary Gates has written a book, Secretary Rumsfeld has written a book, Tom Franks has written a book. And, and um, I enjoy rereading those because um, I go back and compare them to my little volume of, of journal that I have and go, oh, okay. It wasn't exactly that way, but it's, but it's close. Um, so it's it's interesting to to go back and reread some of the history from from the perspective of that individual, and and I think it's important to realize that every book is written from the perspective of that writer, and you know you have to give them the ability to do that. So um, yeah, I you know I, I I'm I'm reading a book about how to do, succeed in the golf industry right now. Not that. Not that I'm, I'm I'm on the verge of doing that, but it's something that's fascinating to me. And so I, I'm a I'm a I might have a couple different books open, and I'll read a page or two or four or five, and then I'll put it down and go back and read something else. And, and of course now with uh, with some of the digital apps, 
you can you can read two or th or well, listen to two or three books at any time and you spend some time in the car you can get a lot read per se thank you for that sir and and thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and we appreciate you being a longtime member of mission readiness well it's been my pleasure and uh, uh, I always enjoy uh, the chance to support what mission readiness is doing rich and and it's important work even more so now as we come out of the pandemic we need to get our schools back open we need to get kids back in you know they've they've suffered from a fitness perspective as well they've suffered from a food shortage as well um, so it's it's really important to our nation to get that machine uh, operating and working again and uh, create the generation we need Well, Abby, what'd you think of the conversation I had with General Renuart? I thought it was fascinating to hear him talk about basing forces in a really complex region like the Gulf. You always read about that type of thing happening in the news, or you read about kind of the latest, hottest piece of news that's happening around the world. But to actually hear firsthand from someone who did it, who lived it, who led people, who also lived it, it was really just kind of neat and one of those eye-opening experiences that we we feel really privileged at this job to have. No, I agree. And he he's a fantastic leader. It was great, great talking to him. And uh, just I, like I told him on the podcast, he needs to write a book because there's just so much there that we uh, he should share with people uh, in the future. And so I, it was a great, great conversation. I loved hearing about the rodeo. I just thought that was cool. That uh, That's a different aspect. And I'd love to learn more about what they do there. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Mission Readiness Podcast. My co-host today was Abby Ware. Today's show was written by Michael Cook, our Colorado Mission Readiness Director, and Megan Adamchesky, and was produced by Abby Ware and John Connolly. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble. <laughs>